And it's just like this fucked agreement. Like, again, it's just this stupid fucking neoliberal agreement between the, um, that Labor and the unions did back. This choice, choice. It is disingenuous. The situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. Ready, let's, let's do it. Yeah, sweet. Well, do we start? Yeah. By introducing, By introducing us. us. <laughs> what a super idea. <laughs> um, I'm Declan and I'm superb at talking about the economy. Oh, groan. I'm Callum. I'm super excited for this episode. Uh, I'm Maddie and I'm super, super tired. So my role is just going to be to say the word super a fair amount. <laughs> We've done nailed it. <laughs> super. The duper. All right, cool. Um, if you if you haven't picked it up, I think this episode we're uh, talking about superannuation and why your super sucks. Um, so, you know, in terms of the episode, we think uh, this has sort of been in the news lately, and we've been meaning to do this episode for ages, um, and we're finally doing it because the current sort of, I guess, moment for super is um, with. Uh, there's a schedule rise that's supposed to be in place. At the moment, we're sitting at about 9.5% super contributions. That's exactly right. And they're looking at bumping it. It's supposed to be bumping up to around about 12%. Yeah. And the progressive take on it, you know, you see it a lot from the unions and Labor Party is, you know, politicians in Canberra get 12 to 15% of their um, super contributions. Yeah, so I think Polly said 15%. Else, yeah, yeah what, everyone else should be up to the same thing. But it's, and it's I very think not just Polly says a lot of difference between people. So I think state public servants probably get about 12. I feel like I used to get 15 as a federal public servant, which is wild. And then there's all these bullshit rorts like the one I'm on right now where there's a compulsory voluntary contribution that I have to make. Yeah. So I have to contribute a minimum of 3% and that's matched. But I'm like, why can't I done it down to zero? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's heaps of that in the public service where mm. it's 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 made as part of, like, the enterprise agreement where... It's some extra bonus rule like on top of that. Like, it's an extra bonus rule, but you have to do it. Yeah. Um, which upsets me a lot. But uh, yeah, the other thing I, I, I read was that that's only changed... Uh, something that only changed last year was they changed the law so that the enterprise agreement, which is why you would mm. be able to be have, like, access to that rule, can't specify what fund you have to put your super into. Mm. Yeah, it's. F- I guess we should save this for the what's not super about super. But yeah, there are some full cookeroo situations full with cookeroo the situation. industry funds. Yeah, the most cookeroo situation, like right now, is that Paul Keating has been on TV way too much. Man, will you just go to the grave? It's mm. very old now. It's time to move on, Paul. Well, we were thinking because super is such a mm, fascinating and <laughs> complex subject that we should start as to the history of super and even sort of where it came from and why it's taken the form it is. The saddest um, thing about Super is that it was put, to, like, the, the kind of the plan and one of the people who's, like, I think called, like, the father of superannuation is a, um, like, a builder's labourer co- communist. He was part of the the union that was the builder's union in Sydney that wasn't doing the green bands, the other mm. one, but he was still a communist. But he ended up being like, kind of brought into the ACTU and doing ACTU organiser training for, like, most of his life. But, like, his his kind of start along the, like, entry into the institution of the ACTU was by being, like, 
the the Australian ruling class has like a, a good like savings mechanism for their retirement. What's good for them should be good for the workers. Let's mm. do it too. Mm. Yeah, I think like that guy's life maybe is a bit of a microcosm of like super. It's kind of an okay idea. Like let's not have people impoverished in old age, but in practice, it's just this neoliberal hellscape. Yeah, yep. and just to sort of frame it, and you know, and again. This is just making assumptions at a base level. What super is we're talking about is compulsory contributions. So that's a percentage of your wage that employees don't give out in a direct paycheck to you, but instead it goes into a savings account that you cannot access um, until you reach retirement age. So it's basically a bit of your paycheck that's locked off. You can't touch it um, because, you know, humans are can't, you know, need instant gratification. Yeah, exactly. Need instant. Gr- the the plebs can't be trusted, and they like instant gratification too much. So it needs to be locked away for them. I've always known that if I was one of the babies doing that experiment, there's no way I didn't go for the marshmallow <laughs> and like end up missing out on extra marshmallows. I feel like that one is one of the most debunked psych experiments, though. So. Oh, that's good to know. I've always yeah. just figured I was doomed, and that was the reason I haven't got my shit together. No, I think on one hand it's like doesn't track that well, and the other hand is that surprise, surprise, it's not like you're an individual with grit or like good willpower it's like if you're a baby who's like either that day or through your lifetime not had as an ideal like life or whatever then you pick that marshmallow yeah yeah if you've had like less security yeah (laughs) your access to marshmallows yeah like you're a hungry baby you eat the marshmallow it's not like well some people just have a great moral fiber and they would never pick a marshmallow (laughs) and so it's based off that flawed um uh stuff that you know why super exists and the way it's sort of sorted these days is um it, it's a, these savings accounts are managed by two different types of funds you've got industry funds then you've got retail funds the industry funds will get into a bit with the history coming out of the unions um it sort of grew out of the union movement and the retail funds are what are usually owned by big financial corporations i.e banks through vertical integration, which is a whole nother story. Um, or even yeah, that's just, a set of syllables that just, just produces no meaning. It exactly. just glances off my brain. Yeah, and then, or like through investment banks. So you've got basically retail and industry as the two big ones. Um, and in terms of the brief, like sort of a brief history of it and where it's come from. So um, it was always like a bit of a mishmash of sort of coverage, like coming into the 1980s. It did exist, but it was... One not- Universal. One of the really like kind of like important kind of tipping points was like inflation was getting really significant in the 80s. The labor movement was like starting to get cucked by Hawke into saying that like we can't like keep giving workers good wages because it's bad for the economy overall. Inflation is starting to like like destroy the economy. And there was one particular like like a union like wage like bargain that ended up being like, well, instead of you getting your 3% pay rise, we're going to put that into like, an, a, like a savings account. One for of the reasons, and I can't remember who it was. I feel like it was someone in the Keating government like came out later and said, yeah, one of the like main reasons we did it was to curb inflation and by curbing wage growth. And I'm like, that's from a fucking Labor Party. Yeah, yeah, which, <laughs> like- is, which is really frustrating because like one of the big debates that's happening now between two of the Labor-aligned think tanks, um, the Centre for Future Work and the Grattan thing is... Mm like what relationship does supervisors have to wages mm. um and one of them is is very strongly like well no wages are only like grow based on the strength of the workers movement like we can't like stop acting like there's other things that do it and the other one's like no look if we look historically like super has played a role in staving off wage growth like that's kind of mm. what it is yeah i read something like 80 percent of super rises like come in the form of wage falls 
as a kind of baseline figure and I, that sounds pretty legit to me. Hmm. Which is why I think how we were talking about before that whole just, you know, to be the progressive take is to decrease wages by increasing contributions. <laughs> like, mm. Oh, no, we're going to give people less now, um, you know, so that in this the health, health future of Mad Max and cyberpunk, they're going to have a little bit more to mm. like... They have a really good nest egg to draw <laughs> yeah, upon. Exactly. So I think the theory in Super, they talk a lot about all these cursed words like um, our system is reaching maturity, which ideally means that there are workers in it. And I don't think we're quite there. There are workers in it that have been in this super system long enough that that forms their retirement income. So if you have someone who's like 60, even if they've been working all their life, often you find people with very low balances. And there's yeah. a lot of reasons for that. But one is that for a lot of people, it just came in in that. Yeah, because it came in, it was never, and well, when I say never, like they they say that it was never supposed to be intended as a replacement for the age pension, just a supplement, but obviously that changed. And so you're 100% correct. There's like people now where they've reached the end where they would have been there with enough. But even then, that's like going forward when you have people starting nowadays who've been on super all their lives particularly like women or people in low-wage jobs or even just because of the casualization of the economy and you're not going to have continuous work, most people won't retire with yeah. enough. I think there was a, an article in like news.com or something where it showed where people in each age bracket should be and then how many weren't. It was... Oh, it yeah, it is, it is a big fail, but I guess we're getting into that point where not quite now, but maybe within the next decade, they should, they economists and losers should be able to assess like, is it working as designed? Like, do, do people have retirement income? Um, I guess the other interesting thing to me to think about in the history of super is like what else is out there? So obviously in Australia, we have the age pension, which depends on your income and your assets. Um, although it's a bit of a mixed bag because there are so many ways, particularly with houses, to have them not count as your assets. So often very wealthy, asset wealthy people are on the age pension. Um, and then we've still got people of a certain age in Australia who are on these old super schemes. Defined where they have benefits. Yeah, defined benefit. Now that is a beautiful type of rot. Yeah, and people love their defined benefit. Yeah. When I worked in the public service, like you'd meet like like the odd public servant who was like, like just holding on for dear mm. life who is so yeah. keen on defined benefits. So yeah, what a defined benefit is, and I think although it's boring, it's kind of interesting to talk about it because it's another example of why our super system sucks. It's this like you pay in a certain amount and then at the point of retirement, you get a, basically a pension for the rest of your life calculated on the income you retire on. So all those defined benefit public servants, they were in like the great art of gaming their defined benefit. But yeah, this 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 is idea that, you know, the risk is of how long you'll live is spread across the population in that super scheme. And so you have an income you can rely on. It doesn't depend on market fluctuations. You'll receive, say, whatever grand a year, and that's what you get. And the other good thing is it means that like there's a bunch of people who are like sitting at 63, 64, about to retire, who are just, their eyes are on the promotion ban, like, like eyes are on the prize. So yeah, this is, um, I think people love it, which is a good sign. Um, but a lot of these super schemes were closed off at one point because they decided that they were not, I don't know, there was this financial risk to them that they didn't feel like the contributions people putting in were enough to support the payouts. But I also think, and I don't know 100% about this, that some of the state governments flogged off some of the assets that were supposed to be in their 
defined benefit super pool. So some of it is like, uh, just look over there. I think it's like, I think because I was actually reading about this because I've I'm working on an article for Flood about um like a strip, like Brisbane's privatized road mm. network and that that was when it was privatized it was sold to the government owned corporation which was set up to pay the defined benefits yeah and then they sold it off after mm. but I can't all this sort of stuff happened like like well after Super had kind of already been yeah. in and it was kind of it seemed to be that they were like oh well look this is the last like 10 15 years mm. we're gonna have to pay we should cash yeah. out um, but yeah, I think I'm not really sure whether it's proven that defined benefit is unaffordable so much as it's like this scare campaign almost to get people into what we have, which is this kind of market-based super. Mm. Um, and then I think the other thing there is um, other countries, some have got very different super schemes. So we'll talk later about Norway, but others have also got this more um, insurance type of model where, yeah, you contribute through your lifetime and more like a defined benefit, you'll then get a certain payout. So I think Australia is reasonably unusual in the in the design of its super scheme. Yeah, absolutely. I think almost all the other like other countries that have got like a similar thing where you pay in and it, like if you pay into what's essentially like an investment trust that then like yeah. pays out to you once you retire, pool that. Mm. Whereas like it's I think and I think this is like what what makes super so neoliberal and sucks so much is that it's explicitly about individualizing. Yeah. Well, and really on two levels, because not only do you not pull the money and share the risk of how long you're going to live, but you also don't um, you also entrust it to all these private businesses to do the investing. Mm. And it's so like um, ironic in a way that it sort of came out of the union and labor movement that this, you know, neoliberalism and individualism occurred because part of the industry super funds is the board of the fund has to be half union controlled and half employer controlled and that i guess is like a really good example of that bargain that the actu and labor party made where it was it's a social contract between labors and employers and the working class will give up their power an industrial power in return for social contract and like social, um, like an agreement with capital, really. Exactly, and I think that's what we're going to be talking about a bit more today in terms of like, well, let's examine that social contract and like, mm. how can we tear it up and what alternatives are. Well, there I to think it? in a lot of ways, um, the huge amount of money sloshing around in super and that management by unions has been a big part of um, maybe accelerating and baking in this kind of like professionalization of people at the top of the union and the real um you know i think there's a lot of reasons in australia that um union exec are very far from the workers but i think the fact that they're essentially like asset managers is a big part of sustaining it because yeah. a lot of um in unions themselves uh, or even you know not everyone in the that works for the union but a few people i've definitely talked to and it have been like pitching the union as an insurance company you know, it's like, oh, the union is an insurance company for when you, like... If anything happens at work. Exactly, which is, again, it's a very, like, corporatization mm. of the union. Well, I mean, in teaching, like, the union density is very high by Australian standards. But when people pitch you to join the union, it's always that, like, well, what if something happens? What if you get accused of something inappropriate? The union will defend you. And I think out of maybe 10 or 12 pitches I heard going through uni and starting out, one might have, I think they were all about that. One mentioned, you know, recent union wins. None mentioned any collective. It was like, this the, is what your union will do for you. Like the a malpractice insurance. of the yeah. <laughs> union movement. Mm. 
I mean, I think to be really generous to, to you know, the socialist who came up with the idea of super, I think absolutely what he was imagining was like, was like a coherent union movement, which like was a way of like socializing the economy. Like, mm. I think what he was saying, like, and, and even to his death and like, obviously completely fucking off the planet in terms of like how this is actually functioning in our society, but was saying it's fantastic. We have the biggest, like the wealthiest co-ops in the world. Mm. Um, I, yeah. I think that's really upsetting to look at it like that but but that's kind of like you can see yeah you can kind of see the logic that they were kind of hoping for is like oh if, if workers like own the whole economy mm. well that's good yeah and then you filter it through people like keating who do not have a collective bone in their bodies and so i guess that sort of brings us then you know i think that's a good overview of the history of super um and i think that bringing it to where it is now there's definitely some big critiques we can make of it. There's um, so many. I mean, oh, like, so I think the, the, the first and the most fundamental and the best in my mind is that, like, workers and investment capital have fundamentally diametrically opposed interests. Mm. Like, so n- no matter how you frame it, like, and, and I think this critique works with, like, even with the, like, the nationalised kind of pension funds that we see yeah. in, like, like you know, the, the sovereign wealth funds and stuff like that. But still, they're, they're actually... Like, in order for these, like, institutions to make profit, they invest money in a place where workers are paid slightly less than the value of what they produce, and then that, like, gets distributed to them. So, no matter what, it's still, like, a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Um, but it but also... there's so many other fucked things about super. But, and, but going through that, how it, it actually also ties the working class to financialization. So, a lot of people who, you know, in the working class who have super are now invested in the stock market. And have an, it's a bit similar to how um, in previous casts we've talked about the working class being tied to real estate mm. and now they're invested and have like sort of that landlord mindset. Now they've become tied to the financial markets and now have that. Absolutely, yeah. I think they really go hand in hand in that real tying yeah. of the middle and upper class in Australia. Even into. though financial markets are fake, mm. it's like now people have a vested interest individualised in maintaining that speculative um, sort of cultural attitude. And that's, I guess... Well, I mean, it's absolutely not fake for people. Like, I was talking to Dad recently and he was, like, asking me which of the random investment options on your super I was in. I'm like, I don't know, you know, the, like, balanced aggressive Oh, yeah, yeah, and the one that's, like, the woke one. Yeah, and he's like, I'm in this one, I used to be in this one, and I'm so glad I changed because otherwise my, like, monthly amount that he gets from his super because he's retired would have been like two thirds less or something. So he's like looking at, you know, through coronavirus, looking at the share market and going like, you know, do I need to step down my lifestyle? Do I need to like find some cash work? And, you know, there's no reason that like through his life, he's had zero interest in the stock market. It's amazing. Just like making people's life like precarious and like, like a lack of stability, no matter what, like, Mm. you know, you you can be retired for 20 years and actually still like this really, really matters to you. Like there's still no such thing as comfort. And that's the, again, that whole idea of tying it to the financial markets is really interesting because a lot of funds can't beat the market, like the returns and a whole, Mm. there's this passive versus active management. So active management is in a super fund, you pay a fee for them to manage your, money so they will invest it like oh yeah these companies will put it in some asset uh stocks will put it in like um real estate cash blah 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 defensive offensive assets etc etc but when like a lot of these funds on their returns don't actually end up a lot of the time beating 
well, the returns for the markets were, and also because that fee over time mm. also compounds, there's a lot of money lost. Yeah. To the yeah, well, a lot of them a couple of years ago when they introduced this um, my super thing. They bought in this like bog standard account that all funds had to offer that was supposed to be the default because a lot of funds were enrolling people in some bodgy option that had really quite high fees. Yeah, I had fucking the heaps b- of life insurance. I was paying yeah. out the fucking wazoo for life oh, insurance. Oh, yeah, that's a different thing. And that's actually still there. You should go check your life insurance. But no, this is about like the management fees and the investment mix and stuff because there were so many funds that were like drastically underperforming. Because most of them like... If you like, if you were just to invest in an index fund, which is literally a fund that just is like in the top hundred or five hundred companies in the market, it'll usually we'll put an equal mm. amount into all of yeah, them. Yeah, and because it's passive, almost I negligible. Mean, I kind of feel like I um, have a lot of views about the stock market being fake, but I feel like the ways you beat the market are either luck or insider trading, or, like, oh, yeah. I'm not, or having more money. Like I think, yeah. like it's like. Like, you know, this this index fund, like, the way you make money on that is having enough money to throw a little bit at everything and know that, like, if the whole system is geared towards infinite growth, mm. then well, so it's going to work. So, that's matching the market, right? If you want to beat the market, oh, no, like, picking mm. stocks, I think it's luck in the short term. Or I think most people are doing it via insider trading of some kind or, like, complex hedge fund shorting kind of bullshit. Mm. That sounds right. Because mm. a lot of the, these, like, people that are seen as being um, kind of genius investors whether they're hedge funds or people like Warren Buffett are just engaging in huge or amount of market Redditors manipulation into GameStop <laughs> yeah well yeah you I don't think you can beat the market unless you're a person wealthy enough to either influence regulations or have access to inside information mm, that's my theory no, um, you're right. facts about stonks <laughs> and then I guess the other thing to mention as well before we get into like the deep structural critiques is just the um entrenching of wealth inequality obviously we mentioned it before about how women um and like people in from lower socioeconomic backgrounds it entrenches them further in wealth inequality because they won't have enough super to retire on plus there's a whole bunch of tax dodges we should even just talk about the mechanism for that because it's really straightforward but it's so it's so weird how little you hear this critique leveled at super but like by definition if everyone gives up 10 percent of their income to their retirement then people with like earning a hundred grand will put in twice that uh, someone earning yeah, 50 grand. That's oh. not super. That's bad. That's a bad system. Like, I don't know. My dream system is that uh, there's an adequate age pension for everyone and everyone else can get fucked. Like I don't care about, cause the whole, one of the things, one of the other cursed super words, there's a couple of them. One is um, replacement rate, which they measure whether super has succeeded in terms of what percentage of your average lifetime, in- lifetime income does it replace? So say you might seek as a you're working full time, they might seek for your super to replace 60 or 80 percent of your starting income. And that's obviously just a full cooked measure right out the gates. Like, yeah, yeah. Because it, what it's saying is like, oh, if you're on five hundred thousand dollars a year through your working life, you actually need four hundred and twenty for aim the rest to of your that. retirement. Yeah, like, or if to, you're to earning life. 40 grand, then you should have as much of it replaced as someone who's earning a lot more like that's yeah. fucked up. Bullshit. Yeah, as opposed to saying like, what, like, how much money does someone need to have a good life? And like a, like a comfortable existence. Yeah. And let's so like one of the other um, terms they use is income adequacy, which is like, do you have enough money? But often it's not pegged to like, what is the minimum wage or what's the poverty line or whatever, or what we think of as a good life. But often it comes from these replacement rate calculations. So Callum earns a million a year, but he's only replacing 50%. That's not adequate. I earn 40 grand. I'm replacing 70% of it. That might be adequate, which is clearly fucked. 
and I think it goes into this, you know, the other thing about super is that, um, and this is very real fake type of nonsense, but like when people in the government evaluate super, they think about like, well, is it meeting these replacement rate goals? And how much is it like costing the government in terms of tax concessions? And then how much is it saving us on the age pension? Because what we haven't really talked about um, is that through the life of your investment in super um, and when you're taking that income as a retired person, there's a huge amount of tax concessions. And so these tax concessions, because wealthy people have more money in super, the tax concessions hugely favour them. So it really acts. $43 billion a year in tax concessions. It's mm. an insane amount of money. $43 billion. It's like, that's like as much as the mineral resources rent tax. I'd that- say it would be more like it really blows. They, I think they pretty much spend as much on super tax concessions as the age pension in the, in the same realm Sounds of right. numbers. Yeah. And that when you look at it, it's not like, well, tax is kind of fake. So we might not care about tax concessions, but it's so wildly skewed. Mm. Yeah. Like and the top 20% would be using most of that $4 billion. And I also read an article um, sort of like drawing in the age pension cost as well. I was reading an article, I think, by Cameron Murray. He was examining sort of the difference between the age pension system and the um, uh, super system in terms of efficiency. And in terms of like admin costs and versus like how much is paid out to members, the age pension system is actually, like, way better. Well, you'd expect it to, because the public service department, right? Yeah. Like, it doesn't, like... Like, it doesn't have anyone who needs to be paid a special bonus. Mm. There's no profit, because it's the profit motive is taken out. Yeah, there's some interesting graphs if you look them up. Um, I saw some before this on my good friend uh, Groganomics's website, the only ethical journalist that works for The Guardian, in my opinion. <laughs> All he does is make charts. And I, I'm a big chart criticizer, but I believe his numbers are legitimate. I stand behind him. He does not do fake numbers. Anyway, um, there's some interesting ones on there for different um, sections, like of the population. What is the mix of super versus pension providing their retirement income? Yeah. And for most people, we do in Australia not too bad a job of retirement income. Now, obviously, that's very inequitable, and it really depends on your housing situation. And often as you get older, your healthcare. So, for example, if you have like a DVA pension card, you're way better off than someone who's paying out-of-pocket stuff or whatever. But anyway, we're not too bad in the scheme of things. But you kind of think, and I think they dreamt when they bought in super, that you'd have, say, the bottom quarter of people supported by the age pension, pretty much everyone else in the super space. But we're pretty much in a space where I think the... So if you divide people into five lots... The bottom three are mostly supported by pension. So that's taking you all the way through the middle. The fourth lot of people, so this like 60 to 80% income range, they're like a mix of super and pension. And then the top is their super, but it's also their private investments they have. So these people don't even need that money. They also have all this other stuff. So often people in like government number bunkers, they want to draw it down. So those middle, upper middle income earners aren't relying on the age pension. But for me, this is just, and maybe on some level that's worthwhile because some of them are doing it through doing some very sus stuff with their expensive second house. But to me, it's just an argument of like expand the age pension across. We're already paying it out to pretty much everyone. Like, this is our retirement income system. We don't need this whole other morass. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if, if the concessions we're giving to these like incredibly wealthy people is 
is enough just to pay for the age pension for mm, everyone. Yeah. Like, one of the things that I was thinking about... I don't about, give a shit about like the replacement rate for people who have enough other income from other investments to be if, already fine. If you've been getting paid like $700,000 a year for like like your whole working life or even like 15, 20 years of your working life, I don't give a shit. No. Like I just couldn't give a shit. Mm. You deserve the pension... Yeah. Like everyone else. And they do but so no much more. fucking around like every single year with trying to close these like super loopholes about how much money you put in your super, all this bullshit. Franking credits, is that something um, related to that? Kind of, but not really. That one's more about your share, writing off your share losses and stuff. But I think that only happens if you're doing a self-managed super. I don't know. It this can, is all. This yeah, is all. it can get in there. It's kind of like basically it's so tax favorable to use super that they always have a limit of a cap of say you can put hundred grand into your super every year or you can put so much in and it's really complicated and they have all these little rules and they're constantly closing loopholes because basically it's so advantageous that people are just like going hard and obviously the people doing this are rich people mm. yeah because you can't go hard in inve- in your investment strategy if yeah you don't like have maybe money, if like- you need all these rules about shoving like half a million dollars into your super at one time then the whole system is not where it should be well, I think that's sort of, a, again, a good look at the smaller critiques. And now I think it's good to look at the structural, where do we go from here and sort of how do we... I think maybe one thing, just a little bit in the smaller critiques, you mentioned um, women and lower-income workers, but yeah, I don't I think know. It's, I, feel I think like it's that's... a shame to like talk about it without mentioning that women over like 55 or 65 mm. are the fastest growing homeless group in Australia. Yeah. And that having a like a pension system, which is linked to your like working earnings is obviously going to exacerbate that Mm. but then also like there's so much you see so much discourse from like you know labor and union types as well being like well that's why we really need this like percentage increase Mm. well that's going to leave it like it's going to only intensify that gap between men and women like that's that's what percentages fucking do yeah so sometimes you see some proposals about um having parental leave have super attached yeah or maternity leave whether it's like government or employer provided and that would do something but yeah i think this pattern for women where you have time out of the labor force on mat leave but then you are way more likely to go back part-time is like even if you go back the extra percentage doesn't help you and I think they um, also get fucked around in the same way um, as a lot of people do who are in like pretty casualized and lower paying jobs where like you have to earn a certain amount to get any super contribution from your employer. And in general, if you are in a casual job or have a sus employer or in a kind of dicey <laughs> industry, the likelihood that your super is actually getting paid as it should be is yeah, just exponentially low. lower. Yeah. And, and also that there's a... Like that super is taxed at a flat rate. Mm. Mm. And so there's a good article, a good article in news.com um, <laughs> about that gap. And it, it sort of goes through the age uh, brackets and sort of it has one column being the average balance of where it is and then the balance required for a comfortable retirement. Mm-hmm. And off the straight off the bat, they notice that between men and women, there's a 10 to 15% difference already. Um, so that's that sort of mm. um, gender gap coming in. But then in terms of the gap between the average balance of what people retire on versus where it should be, for people who are in their 60s, which is sort of those people who missed yep. out on the start of it, the balance required for a comfortable retirement is about forty-three, uh, $430,000. The average balance is one hundred fifty-four. 
thousand dollars. So we're sitting at like a quarter of what we need to be. Yeah. So there's like a two hundred seventy-five thousand yeah. dollar gap there. And then you sort of go down and, it, and it's and very much the same. And generally you find, I think, women are like a bit more than half of the average balance of men. So say 60% all across different age ranges and stuff. They're kind of at 60% of the male average. And then I think those figures get even more fucked because I'm sorry, I'm turning into a, a real... No, um, you're, you're a number well. <laughs> uh, number fully. But like this, a lot of these figures that you see when they say average, usually they're doing like a mean. So add up everyone's money and divide it. And sometimes when you look at this, like when you have really high wealth individuals, that's super skewed. So one of the measures of like a fucked and very unequal system is when like your, you know, common, if you line everyone up and pick the middle person, if that balance is way lower than the average, when you share the money out equally, that means there's a lot of rich people distorting it. And that's our super situation. So when you see those averages, well, then there's X many women who are not meeting that because they're all clustered around the mm. no to low super thing. And the, I think the whole yeah. thing is just getting hidden in this. Um, it's a bit the same wealth. when people talk about average wage versus yep. median wage. Yeah. It's so the same skewing. Yeah, definitely. And I think super is one of the more extreme examples of that, like mean versus median. That God. ends your um, <laughs> statistics lesson for today. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Miss Maddie. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, shall we move on to the Dr. Robo dubstep Dr. Robo. article? Yeah, it's, we love uh, DJ Rob Step, DJ Robo Step. DJ Dubstep. Um, yeah, um, I, like I think what some of the things that that um, our friend makes like really, really clear in, in an article that they wrote is exactly how much money is sitting in superannuation mm. and, and like getting a bit of a grasp of what it is. And like we shouldn't be surprised, right? Like if every single if every single wage is garnished at 10% or, you know, 9.5%, mm. that, like, if that's massive. Like, that's mm. a huge, huge amount. Shall and I throw out some numbers? Throw out some numbers. All right, I'm going to hit you with some numbers. So, the scale of Australian superannuation is $2.9 trillion. That means nothing to me. So, let me put it into <laughs> context. Divided equally, it's roughly $150,000 for every single Australian. Um, now, or another example would be, you know, 2.9 trillion for the superannuation. Australia's GDP alone is 1.9 trillion. So it's a full $1 trillion more than the GDP of Australia. And what's GDP, Callum? Gross domestic product. Mm, and what's that for the punter at home? Um, look, it's a real fake statistic, but it's basically... <laughs> Just like what a country produces in its output, but it, it's again, it this, it, it it's look. I did economics at <laughs> UQ, and I still can't can't really fucking describe it. But let's just say it's like a real fake number that they like to put out there like to show how rich a country. It's is. just like the value of every transaction in a, uh, like an not annual just period, every right? transaction because it's it's trying to measure like everything that we do. So if you're working in the like um, knowledge economy minds, you're probably doing nothing in terms of product or value, but they're putting like some type of value on your. Um, time kind of imagine like if everyone in Australia and also all our resources and our natural environment and whatever if you put that all to work what's like the dollar value of what it does in a year in yeah, a it's usually used to describe so like so much. it's usually <laughs> yeah. just used it's also usually used as like um, a measure of well-being of a country and like mm. richness which is really fucked because it doesn't take into account healthcare education mm, yeah. all these other things look I could get into I could get into human development indicators all day but 
But yeah, going back to super, it's literally a trillion dollars more than us, the annual GDP of Australia. And then the other great statistic is that it could buy the entirety of every single company on the ASX and leave a trillion and have still have a trillion dollars yeah, left over. Yeah, that one I love. Let's sign that one it is into so law. good. That one yeah. is so good because because it, it it shows what like what the socialists were kind of hoping for with this idea, right? Is they're like, oh wow, if we had these like huge worker-owned investment bodies, we could buy the entirety of every company in Australia, and yeah. We kind of have communism then, right? So, say for two trillion, we bought the ASX, and then for the remaining one trillion, we spent that on like building publicly owned housing. And I can't remember the costing, but the startup did the startup per house, assuming that people are paying a little bit of rent based on their income. You know, you might not need more than like a hundred grand per house to get going. So, you know, we can build. How many is that? How many zeros in a trillion? I've no idea. There's so many. Is it nine? <laughs> mm, well, there's billy millions. Oh, it doesn't go in my calculator. That's a bit of a problem. <laughs> anyway, I'm just saying, what if we try to get every family a publicly owned house plus we bought the ASX? Well, and I think that's like what's what's really like good about this, like this sort of thing is because when we're talking about retirement, what we should be talking about is what sort of life do we think like people should be entitled to? Uh, okay, so I think we can start the project of building a million um, publicly owned houses. That's good. With that spare trillion. That's Based good. Based on this detailed calculation. <laughs> <laughs> For those at home, Maddie is crawling on and like uh, on a All page. I've done is wrote out one trillion and then crossed out how many zeros. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's like, it's the really interesting, because I think that last statistic that it could buy the ASX is really fucking interesting in the like context of union and worker struggles you know and how you know because i was thinking when i was reading it, i was like oh shit like you know you've got when you've got strikes happening why can't like you know if you well you know if you have strikes happening if there was a like big strike to happen could a potential strategy be like for radical members to go through you know the super fund whatever that they're all in because you know there's definitely been like a move away from like if you're in this union you're in this fund but to be going to the fund and being like hang on we're members of your fund you are a shareholder in this company that's fucking us over like Mm. go through that yeah and it's just really interesting putting it in the context of a weakened union movement with no power and yet all this money in these funds that control all the shitty companies yeah, I think occasionally people have made some effort to do it with um, carbon stuff. I used to be involved in that. Yeah, yeah but I, I think it's so, you're so many steps, the average person is so many steps divorced from their super fund that it seems crazy. Like it seems much easier to, I don't know, like write a letter to the Commonwealth Bank and tell them you're switching banks. Yeah, because I, I used to work for an NGO that a big part, so part of my job was this whole ethical super switch mm, to like convince people yeah. to switch to ethical super. Um, but then... Another part of the organization was you'd go to, um, you'd proxy, get someone's proxy who mm. was a shareholder, go to the AGM and ask really like awkward questions in front of everyone to the yeah. board and stuff about their climate risk and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, so that's like part of that whole divestment movement as well. How like, I, you know, I used to also do stuff in universities where they try to divest universities from yeah. um and that sort of thing. And whether or not that's super, like, effective, there's a bit of a debate to it. But it's a useful strategy to think about. Mm. I think I think I, when it, like, when you're thinking about it in terms of, 
what the union I'm a, I'm a member of and ostensibly have democratic control of has like a significant say in the investment strategy of like enough money to, to buy everything in Australia mm. like twice over. Yeah. Like that that should mean a lot. Like Yeah, it's wild. Like when I heard that figure, like I knew there was a ton of money in super. Um, but that one and a half ASXs really blew me away. And I think when you think about your own, you know, there are so many people who might have an equal amount of savings as super, or they might have way more in super than they've got in the bank for a lot of people. But it's, I almost, I don't want to be conspiratorial about it, but it's a fantastic design for making it feel like it's not your money. Like I personally feel like I'll never get it. It's not my money. I can't control it. And that at writ large for the Australian workers. Mm, majority of people like are not actively involved in their super. Yeah, like and my account is not my money and this whole however many trillion dollars does not belong to the Australian people where it does. Yeah, I think the other thing it does, like on like on the side of the employer, is it, it makes them it makes them have a much bigger wage bill than we feel like we mm. like that we receive. So like you know, like, a, a lot of employers do talk about, like, a, a high wage bill. They'll talk about that always, and they, mm. they'll talk about wh- whether it's high or low. But, like, they are genuinely paying 10% more than we are actually receive as a wage. And yeah. that, that gap in, in those mm. two realities yeah. is, I think, a big part of the discourse. Like Yeah, and when you have, like, thinking about a super rise, like, I would not perceive my wage to go up at all with a super rise. No. Like, I just personally don't believe I'll ever receive my super. I think no, it'll given either up. be confiscated or we'll be in a complete climate collapse or they'll rage the age of retirement to 400 or something. Yeah. Or, or like we'll, we'll win and we'll do something good with mm. super. Like, yeah, that's like, the good outcome. Like, but mm. like, no, even like, even like the positive scenarios, I don't yeah. get my super. Like, mm, Yeah. So, I mean, that means nothing to me, but if my wage goes up by 3%, it does mean something to my employer. And it is absolutely like, I fully back Grattan on this, that I really do believe that super rises are replacing rage, wage rises well like like one of the first ones was explicitly for mm, that purpose yeah. so like we have like if that's explicitly what it's been for then we mm. have to at least give that some credence as part of the possibility here yeah yeah it's a real um a whole just like countrywide condescension on the you know no one knows what to do with their three percent whack it in here yeah hmm. do you have any thoughts because i know you declan you and i have talked about democratization of industry super funds and i've always been interested to like sort of flesh that out well like i think it's i think it's a really exciting discussion because i think there's like there's so much wrong with the union movement in australia but i think like at the the heart of it is that we've got a union bureaucracy which is like very very undemocratic and unaccountable to the members um and a lot of this is like tied up in their like that the union bureaucracy see their personal well-being associated with the super fund as opposed to with the, the the well-being of the members um I think, I think organizing in, like trying to organize your super fund through your union is a really good way for union members to be able to see that actually the bureaucracy of their union isn't on their side. Because when they go to their union mm. and they say, look, for example, what if we tried to nationalize Forex just mm. as like one yeah. thing that we could do? Like there's a bunch of people who work in Forex, their union. Like, what if, like if you are in the Hospo union, what if your union bought Forex particularly and then had subsidized Forex to well, the members? Like, like that's that's absolutely possible, mm. right? Like, like for the the Forex brewery was up for sale not so long mm. ago. If like a union, like a bunch of union members could have been like, hey, well, why don't the things up for sale? We're worried we're going to lose our jobs. Why don't like mm. why doesn't the huge investment body that is ostensibly ours with our money 
by this institution that we know like people love forex like it's not going to go off like stop selling like let's just buy it sell it at cost price and guarantee our jobs and our retirements and our livelihoods and like this cultural icon and how happy would you be as being like oh yeah i own a bit of forex like there'd be so many people whenever they drive past the factory whenever they grow the bottle they're like yeah that's mine that's mine people love people love it and i think we we could do that with like we could do that with everything and i think like what would be like what i think the the real like hope and possibility of this is that it 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 starts making that like that conflict between the union members Mm. saying why don't we just buy this fucking like why don't we buy this factory and their their organizers their union bureaucracy and their super fund being like no look i know what you're saying but that's probably not like we don't want to set up too much of a precedent mm. here re-corporatizing the economy because that's pretty bad for investment yep. returns. Um, and one of the other things that we really need is that the the road over there, we need people to keep paying their tolls on it. Uh, the real estate around this area, we, we need the land values to keep going up because we own that. And in 15 years, we want to build apartments on it. Like, mm. we, like we need the, like the whole system of, of rising prices to go. And starting that conflict, I think, does so much to... To, to regenerate the union movement because it, all of a sudden members start having like a really tangible stake in saying, oh, I can see the ways that my union is anti-democratic. Mm. I can see the ways that they're not doing what we as members are asking them to do. I think for me, I just worry about like if you imagine doing something really low stakes, like going in as part of some kind of investment thing and being like, yo, can you not invest so much in fossil fuels or can you not like invest in, I don't know, arms manufacturers or shit like that? And people having these experiences of these things completely failing, like the most baseline type of demands. It's like when you're, you know, I feel like often people's relationship to unions is the same as to politics where they don't believe there's anything in it for them. There's no way they can influence it. There's no possibility but defeat. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm interested in a path to some kind of concrete. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, that means people need to get get organised in their mm. own union. And, they're like, that's going to be so different in various unions. But, like, I mean, like, within the CFMEU, right, I think they could absolutely do that. And, and it's not like their union's any better than any... Like, their their super fund's better than anyone else's. Like, uh, the one William Street, the can't escape it building, was mm. built by um, CBUS, the, yeah. the CFMEU superannuation fund. And it's, like, this awful privatised... Thing. like all the cleaning is outsourced to these private companies it's like the state government who's like releasing it on like some weird like hundred hundred year lease with guaranteed yeah. conditions like the whole thing is like you know like corporate corporatocracy all the way down pretty much not super <laughs> guys that's super <laughs> not super the other thing i just thought about in one of our little little quibbles is that like um, a huge amount, I read somewhere but can't remember the percentage, a huge amount of super balances are actually just bequested. Yeah. So this is a good measure of the rich people. Like they're not actually funding retirement. They're just an asset. That was actually one of the things that um, Dr. Robostep um, had in terms <laughs> of like future alter- uh, like ways to move it was abolishing the mm. inheritance of super yeah. taxes. So this quote, I can't remember where it came from. When retirees die, most leave the majority of the wealth they had at retirement as a bequest and that retirees tend to only consume the ins- the income coming off the asset, not the assets themselves. So it's just somewhere to park your assets, live off the income and then pass it on. Whereas you can imagine this collectivized world where we own the assets mm. and support people 
off the income regardless of what their working life history was. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if the $40 billion a year in tax dodges was instead going to just like a public housing program. Mm. And like, like we could get to that point where we actually just have everything that everyone needs to have a good retirement on a really modest pension. Mm. Like we keep talking about like how expensive it is to fund for everyone's retirement. But a lot of these, like these capital intensive kind of programs, like, like a public housing system or like, you know, like, good good healthcare and good schools and good facilities yeah. in the community, the sorts of things that mean that you can live a really comfortable life with very little money mm. aren't there. But like once they're built up, then you can actually live really comfortably on 50, 100 bucks a week. Yeah, you can imagine a really bright future in so many ways. Like if you think about a super fund that owns a ton of residential housing stock, well, your like sort of baseline demand could not necessarily be in terms of this being... Um, free housing or whatever but this being housing that has long-term leases available like as yeah, your baseline at, at very least it's mm. like got like favorable conditions to the workers who ostensibly own that farm yeah so in terms of i guess future um uh, utopias for superannuation what would be best then would it be democratically controlled super funds so there's still like more than one or would it be better to have a sovereign wealth fund like Norway where it's just a singular fund that everyone pays into I mean I think I think like the lower level that the democratic control happens on the smaller group exerting democratic control the the better generally um I think like state institutions are more democratic than private institutions but they're not still super democratic um I don't know it's 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 hard, but like I think like fundamentally with both these things, they still come up against that problem, which is returns on investment are conditioned on people not getting paid the value of the work they've done, mm. which is like fundamentally still opposed to to workers' rights and even if that like workers' interests, even if that means the investments are happening overseas. Yeah, I really worry about the tying into the stock market, even as you have greater. Um, working control in some instances like I think the strike example is a great one but yeah when you're still fundamentally tied into you know I it's hard to see how to unscramble the egg there I mean I think and I think that's why it needs to be like like people in their unions being like look we demand this purchase of this real asset Mm. because if it's like you know so much of Australia's like like farming is is like owned by these like fucking awful people whose parents were the you know, the, the people who, like, spread around the arsenic blankets. Yeah. And, like, to work on these farms is a fucking awful experience and you end up having to pay half your, like, half your wage back to them well, to sleep in a I'd shed. Well, and I'd say even those, like, sort of farming dynasty families are increasingly being bought out by just multinationals. Yeah, sounds right. But, like, like there's nothing to stop, like, a union being like, look, we, we want to use our super fund to, like, buy a set of farms, mm. like, buy a set of, yeah. like, productive land build comfortable accommodation where we can pay people adequate wages and then buy a set of retail chains and distribution networks mm, so that we yeah. can have like members co-ops and stuff in the city that like sell these sell these fruit and veggies at cost price yeah. you know the, the cost of the the cost of the wages the cost of etc cetera, etc cetera. like i think we could start that process of cooperatizing the economy through this mechanism 
Nice. Yeah, I like this this ground up approach. And I think there's a lot of targets in there that can make people happy. Like you want to own forex. forex. People love to own a bit of Australian land. They like to pretend they are a farmer. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Whereas there's no, and I think it's it sounds silly to think about what makes people happy. But if you're going to be engaged with this whole complex financial system, you can't be engaged with like the ASX price or franking credits or any of this type of bullshit as a regular person. But if there's something for you to cling on to that you can understand that this is benefiting this person this is this concrete asset i think there's a like imagine going like knowing that you can walk down to the shops to like and the, sh- the shop's yours mm. and like the produce is yours and like you still have to pay for it but that's because someone's worked for it like and it's, it's that way of, of of taking the profit motive out of the production and distribution of goods and services and i mm. think that's fundamentally what we want and it could be and it's sort of like rewinding the privatization of all our monopolies because Australia is one of the most monopolized countries in the world you know groceries banks all yeah. of these things are owned by the super funds and so it could be quite you know a pathway to you know make a national food producer to re- rewind the privatization of the banks to to nationalize that side of financialization as well um, and it's just I don't know I've, I've definitely when Declan first mentioned like democratization of super i was very like skeptical of it because i'd come from a like ngo environmental divestment movement that i'd sort of been like quite left being quite critical of so i was like eh, i'm not really sure if like divestment of superannuation is a good thing but having like chatted it out a bit more and like done actually a bit more thinking about it i think it's actually a really useful thing when tied in as an actual like um push back against capital rather than just sort of like a shifting around of funds, which is where I Mm. think divestment really falls down. Well, yeah, I think the less rosy version of super might be, for example, nationalizing also very pie in the sky, but nationalizing all super in one government controlled fund. And that's a very different thing and something with a lot of potential pitfalls. But even that like medium version has a lot of potential for Australia to kind of, um, protect itself from economic shocks or think about like how do we build our manufacturing capacity or how do we do this versus just letting you get blown back and forth we didn't by talk the market. about economic shocks and like what they mean for super like when we're talking about how much it sucks but like mm. you know there's so many people who just like lose substantial amounts of their super towards the end of their oh, reti- yeah, it's crazy their retirement just because bad luck the gfc happened in 2008 and you're mm. planning to retire in 2009 fuck yeah, yeah. like absolutely fuck yeah mm. um we like it's such an uncivilized way to provide for for our pe- people's it's well-being. It's real bad, yeah. It's just literally like put it all on black. Yeah. So yeah, I think either either version of that have yeah got so much upside, but yeah, the path to I, I don't know is very much like question mark question mark question mark profit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like with with both of these, it like well, with the with with my favorite one, obviously, which mm. is like you know cooperatizing it. Like that means that means. S- such a coherent like block of people within their union fighting for this mm. um, and unions are ostensibly democratic and I don't actually I think they're so hollowed out I think a, a bunch of people could probably leverage this relatively well it's a pretty common sense idea it's really easy to talk about mm. this with someone being like oh hey don't you think we should just buy the place we work at like yeah like guarantee our jobs like I think it's it's relatively easy but Although I think it's a bit challenging because so many of these industry super funds are rolled up into such big ones like the number of people covered by like Cbus or host plus or something would Australian be Australian super is the big one yeah so you're everyone or like if you're in one of the public service ones you are every single government employee in the state or the country 
Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, obviously it's not easy if we had... Mm. If it was easy, we'd do it. We'd have done it already, you know? Like, I don't think we're yeah. thinking anything super original here. I think the, I think the people who were proposing super were, were picturing it doing exactly the sorts of exciting stuff we're talking about. Mm. Um, it it obviously failed to do that. And I think I think they obviously made some really, off, like, fundamental failures to even think about the ways that it... The, the way it's, it is opposed to workers' interest. Yeah, it's interesting and kind of um, reassuring in a way hearing about that from you because I often think about Super as just coming from Keating and I really think of its um, aims to be to suppress wages and to couple, like houses, couple Australians into financial markets. So yeah. it's it kind mean, of interesting to hear a less cynical... Well, like th- that's what it's been and there's no way it was taken up if it didn't serve mm. those purposes, right? There's no way Keating like was like, oh, let's actually do this. If, if that's what its role yep. wasn't fundamentally going to be. But naive or not, it was still, there was still were these like beautiful intentions there. So as a, just a random personality quiz test, um, what, what do you guys reckon on the, the recent take your money out of super? Did you think it's a good idea to take your money out of super? I feel like it's a great, like, do you believe in the future test? I was honestly like probably 60% take it out because climate change change is going to kill us all and then 40% like I still believe in a utopia (laughs) Um, I didn't take it out but that's because I don't think I've got anything in there (laughs) yep Um, and I didn't want to look because it bores me (laughs) Uh, but I think like I think you probably like I think on balance you're probably better off having taken it out I think you could probably do something better with five grand now or ten mm. grand now than you could. Yeah, I found it, it so in interesting in that period because there's all these graphs like if you take out ten grand now, that's equivalent to taking out a hundred grand. But of people my age, it was pretty everyone. Not everyone necessarily got their shit together to take the money out, but maybe a seventy five percent agree with take it out, which I think is a really interesting like weather on how we're going. Well, it's <laughs> do like, we believe in the future? It's like what what we were saying before. Like best case scenario, I don't use my super anyway because it's part of some nationalized product or yeah. like, you know it's, it's part of some some fundamentally different like system and it, if i don't get it because it's been confiscated well i've felt never felt like i had it anyway yeah i look forward to not being able to use my super in the post money economy that we live in after our next several electoral victories no i can't wait <laughs> i'm gonna take all my super out and put it on black at queen's wharf Good stuff. <laughs> woof, woof. If by black you mean like investing it in like some kind of explosives that you can put into the foundations of Queen's Wharf, then I support you 100% and I'll contribute my super. Uh, we allegedly support. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any form of black explosives? <laughs> All right, you heard it here first, folks. Super's bad. Oh, and if you're the person who gave us money to say that Super's bad. Oh, from bad, like episode so like one or something. Super's good or something. <laughs> Please do it again. Um, yeah. Actually, if you would consider giving 9.5% of every single mm. in, like piece of income to us, you can tell us we're bad every single week for the rest of your life. Yeah, why not? We won't even tax you for it. No. Cool. All right. See you next time, folks. Bye. Toodaloo. Bye.